Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and as always I'm joined via the miracle of satellite technology by Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hello, yes, good thank you. I'm uh, basking in the glory of a three day weekend of which I have to work for one of those days. But you know, bank holidays. I got at least got a two day weekend which is uh, unusual for me. That's pretty cool, yeah. I am currently sheltering from a... A rainstorm that has been going on for about eight of the last ten hours. Oh, wowzer. Um, which uh, is, you know, for the first two hours, it was like, oh, this is quite a nice, relaxing sound. The rain hitting the windows and everything, sit and read a book. But around hour three, I was like, come on, I've got things to do today. Mm. And then there was a brief let up in which I was able to leave the house and go to the gym for a bit. But yeah, it feels like a forced lazy sunday for me which is uh the worst kind like it's all right if i thought okay i planned to not do anything today but being trapped by nature is uh a little more annoying trapped by nature is like a kind of really inane bravo show where like <laughs> people are just stuck indoors due to inclement weather which is mm. but no means like kind of natural disaster level just i don't want to go out and drizzle yeah, I think that, based on, like, the Great British Bake Off, I think that would do very well in the US. Mm. If it was just... In, in the UK, everyone would be like, well, it's just it's just every day, but over there, would be like, my God, it's so grey. Yeah, it's a How can they stand grey. to live there? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you, well, some of us couldn't, Ed. That's why you fled. Mm. Mm. But now, look, you're getting just desserts now. Yeah, it's it's tracked me down. It took six years. It's like <laughs> student loans. <laughs> they never forget. Yeah. No, they never forget, and they certainly don't forgive. Mm. Do the student loan company like if you if you emigrate, Ed? Do they lay off you after a while, or does it just keep coming? Uh, I haven't been contacted in a while, so maybe it's just coming. But uh, yeah, I think if you if you just leave the country, it's it's probably harder for them to track you down. Mm. My old housemate fled the country halfway through his second year. Um, having decided he wasn't going to really make a go of the academic lifestyle mm-hmm. um, and uh, ran off to Austria to become a lumberjack. And <laughs> um, he uh, had his student loan written off like last year or something. It was like 15 years. It was like written off as bad debt. So that decision mm. paid dividends. wonder if he'll come back now. Yeah, I think that's the the thing, isn't it? It's either, or at least when I had to you know, go to uni and that's had to kind of navigate all the student loan stuff. It was like, if you couldn't pay it back after a certain amount of time, they just wrote it off. Or if you became a teacher, I think they wrote it off or that they kind of like mollified it. But I don't know if that's still the case or if that was just something that was a lie to make people go to university. Cause they thought, Oh, it's not too bad if you go into like a, a noble profession. Mm, yeah. If you just kind of swan around doing some kind of dipshit degree, like film studies or something, mm-hmm. then you, you're going to get taken for every penny you borrowed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so it's kind of a quiet news week this week. But the, the, the probably the biggest story from our perspective was the the announcement that Roman Polanski and Bill Cosby were both being kicked out of the Academy. Which Roman Polanski is kind of like said he's going to fight it, and he says, "Whatever happened to due process?" Which seems rich from a guy who pled guilty. <laughs> I mean, there was there was due process. It was just in this case very very delayed. Mm. 
Yeah, and he he said that the decision for the by the academy to expel him was immature. I mean, it, it's taken forty years to decide that you know, raping a thirteen year old girl is bad behavior in the, mm. in, the, in, the, in the in the space of that time they've given him one possibly two oscars since then did he, yeah. he definitely won one for yeah he won one for the pianist, pianist. i don't think he's won anything no else. um but he was definitely nominated in that time yeah so i mean that seems a little rich i mean cosby i wasn't really going to trouble the academy with any of his output <laughs> but like you know Seems like the right thing to do, I guess. Yeah, that one's more timely in that the conviction just happened. Yeah. But still, maybe not as quick as it could have been, considering it's been, like, four or five years since, you know, that Hannibal Buress clip went viral and kind of brought all of this stuff up, and it's been over a year since, like, a lot of the women started coming forward. It, it definitely feels like this is more timely in terms of just, oh, we have a a legal reason to kick him out now, or at least we have a legal justification because this has gone through the courts and there's been a conviction and possible jail time on the table. But in terms of like the Academy being a private organization that can rescind membership for, you know, kind of any reason they want to really justify, it feels like this is something that they could have, you know, it wouldn't have been very difficult to read the tea leaves and thought maybe this probably would have been a thing we could have done several years ago. Mm, yeah, I mean, obviously we've had the the groundswell of support for the the Me Too movement, which has made mm. kind of put pressure on it. Plus, also the the kind of broadening of the academy's uh, membership base that we had a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, it means that this kind of thing probably you know wouldn't have happened ten years ago. Uh, even yeah. if some allegations would have come out ten years ago, they probably would have just hushed it up and just said, well, okay, Bill Cosby's never going to make a film and Roman Polanski's, you know, living in kind of semi-retirement exile in France. Let's not worry about it. But, you know, it's a decisive step. And, yeah, it's, you know, more cause to call out the behaviour and, and wrongdoing of people. Whether or not it seems like a token gesture will remain to be seen. Mm. But, you know, you're the, you know, these guys seem to be assholes. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, why not? Yeah, and it it certainly seems less likely that we're going to see a letter signed by like hundreds of Hollywood luminaries uh, supporting Polanski as we did like eight or nine years ago, whenever that was, when there was a petition that went round and a lot of uh, people who you genuinely kind of hope would be unwilling to take the side of Roman Polanski signed it, like. Um, I think I definitely know that Guillermo del Toro signed it, which Oof. I remember at the time, just because I was like, "Oh, that's very disappointing." But there, there was just like a lot of people who all signed this like petition of support for him not to be extradited, because I think that was when he was briefly arrested because he went to like a film festival or something, and then nothing ever came to it, came of it. Mm. And you would kind of hope that something like that won't happen at this point. That's another thing that, because of Me Too and just the way in which. You know, I mean, the the thing with him is it's even crazier. Is it's not even just allegations of you know it's proved <laughs> and he confessed to it and there's no doubt that he did these things. But people are still saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't. You know, he's a great artist or whatever. And it's like, yeah, but he raped a 13 year old girl and fled justice. Mm. I mean, there's not a lot of justification for him still being allowed to be out in the world at this point. Yeah. So, I mean, being kind of expelled from the Academy seems like a relatively small fry. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there's any 
mechanism in place for them to take away someone's Oscar? Because I don't think that's... I know they've rescinded nominations before for, like, people campaigning or because they decided that, like, a score was ineligible or something. Mm, would it be like but, when they catch, like, drug cheat medals, uh, drug cheats mm, in the Olympics, they give, like, suddenly your silver gets upgraded to gold? Like, yeah. will suddenly the right person win Oscars? <laughs> Um, yeah. in Peter order- Jackson for the first Lord of the Rings <laughs> suddenly yeah. gets an extra Oscar. Yeah, um, I'm sure Woody Allen pipped someone good to the post in when Annie Hall won. Yeah, possibly. he would have beaten George Lucas is the one I know that he would have beaten. Oh, maybe. But- Let's not be so hasty about, <laughs> about rescinding <laughs> people's Oscars. But it is, it, it's something that I don't think has ever happened. I wonder if anyone would try and push for that in the case of like situations like that where... You can say, okay, this was, I don't know, tied into... Because I think one of the things that people talk about with in terms of his... One of the things kind of driving his success in, in 2002 was maybe some kind of like, I don't know, like anti-American fervor because it was around about the time of the Iraq war and, mm-hmm. he was a, and there was this weird thing where there was that sense of like, oh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend thing going with him where they were like, oh, you know, the... American government is out there waging this illegal war, so maybe, you know, we should defend people that they're going after. But I think even with that in context, it still feels like that was the wrong choice for everyone involved and that maybe, you know, they could, in hindsight, say, mm, yeah, maybe we'll we'll take a mulligan on this one. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I wonder how all those people who signed that letter of support felt feel now, um, even though they should have felt that way then. Mm, yeah, something for I don't know, like a like Jezebel or something to kind of track people down and ask them. But mm. uh, yeah, we don't really have the reach for that. I guess we don't have a an investigative arm. We don't have a spotlight division who could <laughs> track people down. But uh, if anyone wants to do that, please feel free. Yeah, do it. And just let us know, and we'll talk about it for five minutes at the start of an episode about like Willy Wonka or something. Just like yeah, let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's make some powerful people uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Our main topic this week is one we've been meaning to talk about for a few weeks, but for various reasons it kept getting delayed, uh, as as evidenced by the fact that it's kind of timed to the release of a TV show that has been out for a while, but uh, it's a show that you and I both like, so we thought, okay, we're going to have to talk about this at some point. It's about the Netflix show Love, which finished its third, put out its third season. I always find it weird talking about a Netflix show, because it wasn't, it's not that it finished airing it's literally like it went out Mm. so it just existed yeah it just went out on one day and then that was it Mm. (laughs) it wasn't kind of like the build-up of oh the first episode premiered and then a few 12 weeks later the finale aired and everyone could be like surprised it was more like oh i guess that show's done now but it, it finished a few weeks or months ago at this point the show created by paul rust and judd apatow and i'm just gonna have to look at the name Leslie Arfin. Yes, Leslie Arfin, who is Paul Rust's uh, wife in real life, which is important because it's a show about uh, romance between these two characters, one played by Rust himself and one played by Gillian Jacobs, formerly of uh, Community. And it's kind of inspired a little bit by their the romance between Arfin and Rust, uh, but also I think just is, uh, in general, is kind of like a, a meditation on... This sounds so pretentious. <laughs> a show that's really kind of like funny and 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 quite goofy, but it is a, it is a sh- is a show that's kind of a very thoughtful take on kind of 
dating and love and romance in the modern era. Yeah, and it was one that I had... I mean, I kind of started watching this um, about a month ago. Um, mm. Having like, I always like to have a, a big show and a little show going at once. We've discussed right. this before. I like to have a big show, which is episodes of an hour, and a little show... Uh, which is episodes like 20 minutes, half an hour, running at one time. And I was just in the mood for a little show because what I was watching had finished, and I kind of thought, "Mm, I don't really know too much about this. I like the people involved. And I just started watching the first episode, and I kind of immediately thought, oh, hang on, why have I not come to this sooner, given how not only do, on the surface, I like everyone involved in the idea of it, but like it just features work by people who... You know, you and I have been championing for years and years and years and years all those kind of like fringe comedy bang bang um, mm-hmm. uh, comedians and people who kind of pop up in small parts are all in this one place. And after I kind of got through the idea that this was going to be a slightly kind of hipstery kind of Silver Lake set uh, thing that I couldn't quite relate to about millennial dating, you actually got under the, the skin of the show and mm-hmm. realized it was one of the most kind of painful and realistic depictions of relationships that I'd seen in quite some time. So, you know, I got onto you and said, dude, we need to talk about this. And I think mm-hmm. we we both watched it in, well, like less than two and a half weeks. Yeah. Once I started watching it, I was like, oh no, this is a, this is a really, really good show. And I wish I'd checked it out earlier. I think for me, cause I had the same sort of thing where I was watching, it's like, oh, I like literally everyone who's in this, like everyone who shows up even in small roles of people who, whose work I've liked for years and years and years. And it's just never, and even, I was not even like, I wasn't aware of the show either because on Comedy Bang Man every year to mark the release of a new season, Paul Rust and Gillian Jacobs would go on Comedy Bang Bang and kind of, uh, you know, they they go on and kind of play around with Scott Ackerman and usually like some other member of the cast. So, and that was always my fav, one of my favorite episodes of every year because they're both like really funny and charming. And it's like, oh yeah, I like these two together. Now nah, I'll never check out their show. Mm. And I, I think part of it was that feeling of like it's going to be oh it's going to be all hipstery. And part of it also was that I'm a big fan of the show You're the Worst, which is very similar in kind of setting in they say in like silver lake and it's about these two characters who are very narcissistic and acerbic towards each other but it's a much harder edged show than love in a lot of ways it's much more caustic and and strange and i thought well it's just going to be kind of like the watered down version of that so but when i actually started watching it, i thought oh, this this has its own kind of loose fun vibe to it and i think it's got a, a, such a fun supporting cast that it brings in that it, it stands alone as being distinct from you're the worst even though both shows kind of deal about the same subjects uh not in, in more ways than one because there's also stuff in both shows about uh kind of mental illness and addiction and people trying to manage those things whilst living kind of a full a fulfilling life but i, I also think that the way netflix sold it didn't help because whenever i would select it on <laughs> on my Apple TV, it would say, like, the description for the show would be rebellious Mickey and good-hearted Gus, you know, like, mm. describing them. It's like, this feels like a really reductive version of this thing because she's not, like, rebellious. She's an alcoholic. <laughs> like, it feels like they they didn't quite understand how to piffly sell the show and that, that ended up putting me off because they were selling a version of the show that didn't 
necessarily exist. Mm. I mean, and this is something that we've talked about a lot about how Netflix, whilst they are cranking out the content of which, mm. you know, some of the quality is mixed, but let's not beat around the bush. Some of the quality of their, their output is incredibly high, but mm. we don't get to hear about it because they don't seem to promote their shows in any kind of coherent way. Um, other yeah. than, you know, a guest might go on the Joel McHale show and just go on yeah. and talk about it and do some like goofy skit with him for five minutes. And then all of a sudden, oh mm. shit, that person's got a film out on Netflix. Interesting. And that, that's one of the reasons why I didn't get around to love because mm. it was just, I was like, oh, that kind of looks good. I guess I'll get around to that at some point when I finish all this other stuff. Cause Netflix aren't making any particular effort to make me pick it from the stack. Yeah, I think that's kind of their biggest flaw as a as a network, as a studio or whatever, is that they seem to rely, apart from a handful of things, when something kind of hits, then the second season of that show will get a lot of press. Like, I don't remember there being a big lead-up to Stranger Things when it came out, but when that found, like, a big audience, then suddenly the second season was a real full-court press sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's all based on Ah, it'll build through like word of mouth. People will find it through the algorithm, or critics will champion it. But they, you know, there's there's limits to both of those things, which are you know represented by the fact that a lot of those shows just never really connect. And then you'll hear sometimes you will only hear about a show on Netflix when the announcement comes in saying that they've cancelled it. Yeah, and that's always the bit that you <laughs> you really don't want. Like, mm. that is, you know, all of these shows are word-of-mouth shows, but, you know, it would be easier to spread that word-of-mouth if you could get someone to watch it in the first place. Yeah, it's it's a kind of a strange model, and I think the fact that they have, over the last couple of years, committed so much to putting out so much stuff just exacerbates it. Because when you consider when they put out, like, a handful of, original things every year it felt like an event when something like house of cards started up and i didn't like house of cards particularly but you know it felt like a big thing that they were doing original content and then suddenly uh, they they're putting out a new like two or three new shows a week mm-hmm. um, and you're like well i really can't keep up with all of this and i think that's the I, I'll, I'll just watch like moana for the 20th time which i think is what a lot of people use netflix for to their chagrin is like most people are just like oh, i'll just watch the office mm. because it's a show that they like and they just want something to kind of like hang put on in the background it's not necessarily a great platform for debuting new stuff even though it is also has also provided a platform for a lot of people who you know wouldn't get a show usually like i find it very hard to imagine paul rust who's very talented guy but also a guy who has never really broken out in any major way as an actor you know he was in that movie uh, i love you beth cooper with hayden panettiere many years ago which was a movie that went absolutely nowhere uh and then he had been in that uh, band don't stop or will die with the late harris whittles and he had also had a small role in inglorious bastards but he wasn't someone who had this kind of like list of of hits that would justify him like getting uh, a, a three season tv show even with judd apatow behind it mm, i didn't realize so so we've got a, an episode coming up about the remixed 
Arrested Development, uh, which dropped mm. on Netflix um, again to very limited fanfare. Uh, we obviously we talked about it before. We were like, we knew it happened like two years ago, but like we were like, where is it? You know, when when's it coming? Because mm. I think Ron Howard tweeted that he was recording the voiceover like a long time ago. He's directed a Star Wars mm. movie since then, um, <laughs> and uh, it just ke- just dropped it. Just said, oh yeah, it's coming out tomorrow. Um, which is interesting. And well, yeah, there is a reason I'm talking about this. It's because I didn't realize that Paul Rust was a well, he was like a kind of a story editor on that, which means you know he was you know pretty high up in the writers' room for that, which is something I did not realize. Hmm. Yeah, I think he's someone who, through doing stuff with like Funny or Die and just being part of the LA comedy community he's someone who has just a lot of connections which means that he has had writer's job on a bunch of different shows over the years but it, he was he's definitely one of those people who has a portfolio of stuff but nothing that would make you think oh yeah give that guy a show which mm. uh is kind of the the good thing about you know peak tv to use an overused phrase certainly overused by us mm-hmm. <laughs> overused by everyone the fact that it is an age where a lot of just a lot of people can get TV shows and can offer up pretty much just what they want to do in their own kind of unfiltered vision, which this show definitely felt like. Not that it's like, you know, crazy ambitious or anything, but it definitely feels like a consistent vision of of a a, a particular relationship and a particular story that was allowed to unfold more or less as the creators wanted it to. Hmm. So here's a question. Given that it comes from the same stable, using quite a bit of the same talent, how is love, for the uninitiated, how is love a... How does it fit with something like Girls, which is made by the same people? I think stylistically it's pretty similar. Obviously you don't have Lena Dunham uh, involved as as director and uh, Paul Rust is, is a writer rather than a director, but the stable of people they bring in all kind of uh, like um weirdly john slattery <laughs> directs mm-hmm. one episode but uh what's his name who directs like ten thousand things a year in american indie director who always is just constantly oh joe movies. swanberg joe swanberg yeah. directs an episode you have a lot of people who are lynn shelton you have a lot of people who are part of like that same kind of mumblecore scene that lena dunham was kind of adjacent to so you have people who are good at making things that have this kind of loose improvisational feeling, but not necessarily improvised Mm -hmm. comedy. You know, it doesn't feel like everyone's kind of like flailing around for a funny thing to say, or they're building off of each other, but it does kind of feel very loose and naturalistic. And there's not a lot of overt style to the show, which I think is also largely true of girls. It's more, you know, writerly production than it is a, a kind of a director, a directorial one. But I think also the thing that you can really see as a connection between the two is this willingness to shift between being kind of really insightfully funny and also making you care enough about the characters that when things get kind of emotional and difficult, as they often do, it can actually be kind of painful to watch. Mm. And some of it is... Very painful to watch. We, I mean, mm. we we are going to issue a kind of mild spoiler warning. We won't talk about anything major in the plot, but um, if you want to go in completely cold and, and kind of experience this completely fresh, then probably best to stop listening. We're not going to... If But if you do carry on listening and you haven't seen the show, we're not going to give too much away. 
Um, yes. But the the idea that both, on the surface, it looks like it's a show about a man who has to save, quote-unquote, uh, a difficult uh, woman, but actually unfolds in a way that is really kind of counter to that. Yeah, it's definitely a show where I think I, I remember reading someone saying that they tried watching the show, but they didn't. They they stopped because they just didn't like anyone in it. And I felt like that's kind of the point in some ways. It's not a show that is filled with likable people, except maybe for Claudia Doherty as a birdie, mm-hmm. who is uh, just like a ray of sunshine and just a thoroughly strange but a very endearing human being. Um, but certainly, like, the main two, it... it it kind of initially tricks you into thinking, oh, this guy who's kind of like an aspiring writer who works as a teacher on this very trashy-looking TV show about witches called Wichita, mm-hmm. which is a, a pun I'm very, very fond of. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's th- this guy who, you know, is not in a great place in his life, but certainly seems to be more stable, and maybe that's what the, this other character, Mickey, played by Gillian Jacobs, needs as someone who has substance and... Uh, substance abuse problems and is has a kind of sex addiction issues as well that maybe he's going to be the one to kind of help turn her life around but what it does very well particularly during the second season but it's pretty much there from the beginning is basically saying oh no this guy has a lot of his own problems and even though maybe externally he has like the appearance of someone who's reasonably together internally there's a lot of lot going on with him Mm, yeah, and he he seems to be the person who uh, is in like kind of much better control of his kind of life uh, on a personal level. Uh, he mm-hmm. has like a secure group of friends, and they all seem to like him. But when it comes to his professional development, <laughs> um, yeah. he kind of really gives. Uh, it really produces some of the series' most kind of awkward and cringeworthy moments, uh, especially mm. when in the brief. Uh, in a room where he is uh, promoted to the writer's room of Wichita, <laughs> um, which is how, if any of us got promoted to the writer's room, is is what would end up happening. <laughs> and yeah, we would and not, we it, would desperately try for it not to happen, but it, it would. Yeah, and he's not even really promoted so much as he writes a spec script, which they use one tiny element of, so mm-hmm. he gets a story by credit. And then he gets to sit in the writer's room and then goes completely batshit when everyone basically points out that they like one aspect of the storyline and everything else is dog shit. Which uh, is, you know, just basically how writer's room tend to work is that they take an idea and they try and improve on it. But yeah, he clearly has an inflated sense of his own self-importance and that really trips him up at every possible opportunity, particularly whenever it involves his misguided dreams or at least kind of um ill-considered dreams of being like a writer director particularly his obsession with trying to bring the erotic thriller back Mm. which is kind of feels like one of those things which is like a initially seems like a weird affectation just to make a character seem interesting but as the series goes along it's like oh no he's really committed to this idea even though it's clearly not a genre that has that much of a constituency anymore and his attempts to kind of make a film in that subgenre in the third season don't really go very well. Yeah, and, that, and that's the, one of the really kind of compelling features of Love is that 
nothing seems to go really cleanly for any of the characters and mm-hmm. it makes the the kind of like compulsion to watch them struggle through it even more um even stronger yeah you you definitely have that because even though Mickey and Gus are both quite uh difficult people in the sense that you know they are off, they often self sabotage in one way or another they also the show gives like glimpses of them you know together and you realize oh they they do kind of make sense as a couple even though they also sometimes exacerbate each other's own worst tendencies and that's also true of 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 Bertie and uh, Mike Mitchell's character, Randy. Is mm, that his name? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Randy. It's Bertie's, uh, Bertie's boyfriend. Yeah, where they do have moments of kind of like sweetness when they're together, but also he is clearly just not particularly good for her as a boyfriend, and she's just kind of too polite to break up with him. Uh, and I think you care about the, the the kind of the couple the coupling of the two and of of Gus and Mickey uh, as much as you care about the individuals because the relationship is really uh, in some respects a key character in the show like the question of whether or not those relationships will survive or if they they even should if maybe they're fundamentally unhealthy for everyone involved is pretty much the thread that runs through from the first episode to the last episode. Mm. It's interesting that, you know, obviously this is created by and produced by Judd Apatow, but Mm. this belongs very much in the half of his work that is kind of a bit more realistic, a bit more kind of down and dirty and low budget, as opposed to the Mm. kind of like bro, kind of like gross out stuff of, you know, the 40-year-old virgin and knocked up and stuff like that. Uh, Sometimes I find it hard to reconcile those two halves of his output. Yeah, I think I I have long maintained that he is better suited to television than I mean as a as a as a writer and as a director he's better suited to television. Um yeah, as in terms of like film production it's kind of more a, of a mixed bag cuz he's just it seems to enjoy making films with people he likes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, a lot of them don't necessarily have that much of his stamp on them because it's just other than, you know, produced by Judd Apatow. But as a television artist, uh, I think he really benefits from the limitations of, okay, you have to do this in half an hour. You have to have a an A plot and a B plot. And that suits his approach to comedy, which is more, you know, certainly in the movies that he's written and directed, is more kind of like, okay, these are reasonably realistic people in a reasonably realistic setting, just kind of having conversations that feel sort of like the conversations that real people have. And that's really interesting in television, which is a medium that, forces you you know just because you have more time allows for more opportunities for kind of tangents things that maybe don't necessarily contribute to the plot but are maybe illustrative of the characters in the world like i think i sent you a message when i started watching it that uh if a movie a judd apatow movie had like a five minute sequence which is just the cast singing jet by (laughs) wings 
um with uh e from eels <laughs> um like i would find it like grotesquely self-indulgent but in a tv show you're kind of like oh no this is kind of just like a fun little thing that is happening in this episode whilst something more important and emotional is happening off to the side and television being just more expansive and offering more opportunities for just kind of going down weird little avenues fits his approach to comedy which is to kind of follow those burrows uh, and really burrow down on them uh, even if it ends up in a cold sack it's like okay well you know there's another episode next week whereas in a film it feels like time is a little more valuable mm. like if you have an hour and a half to two hours of my time uh, you want to see a kind of complete story and stuff that is just there because you thought it was funny can just feel like padding yeah it's a lot more organic to unfold mm. a relationship across 30 hours of television than it is over 30 hours of the last two movies he made because that's <laughs> yeah. how long they felt and it also i found it very interesting watching it that the show consists largely like you say it's, it's kind of low budget um or, or at the very least you know not kind of wildly expensive in the way that a lot of tv is but i found it very interesting that so many of them are de facto bottle episodes because so many of them are either about characters kind of being in a house or people going to a party and everyone being at that party very few of the episodes unfold over more than a single day mm -hmm. i think the entire first season every episode takes place over a single day and i think it takes place over the course of maybe three weeks uh i think there's a there's a real interesting relationship in the show to time because it is constantly reminding people how long gus and mickey have been together uh by the end of the sea the the entire series it covers only about eight or nine months of from the first episode which i find really fascinating and there's also the 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 only notable episode where it does cover more than a day at a time comes in the middle of the second season when Gus leaves Wichita to go w and work with his kind of the the girl he's tutoring Aria out at a film shoot, and then because he's away from Mickey, the relationship starts to kind of like fray at the seams a little bit, and you see the first kind of like uh, real problems facing them uh, after four or five episodes of things being more or less okay. Mm. Uh, and I find it really interesting the way in which the show uses the episodic format to really underscore its its kind of its themes in that way. Mm. It's kind of an interesting point that you say that, that Apatow is a better suited director to television in the, you know, like I made the joke about the criticisms of his last mm -hmm. couple of films as they were kind of too long, too rambling, and no one gives a shit. Whereas, yeah. like, this, like, the first episode was, like, February two years ago. And they said, right, three seasons done, bang, like thirty thirty odd episodes, and it's it's over, and the the story's complete, and it's it just feels a lot more concise, having that room to breathe and tell a story a little bit more in a less forced manner. Yeah, and if you were to tell this same sort of story in a two hour or two and a half hour, to judge by his kind of usual running times movie, it would probably be. So it would probably feel a lot more repetitive because the key beats would be this couple meets, they get on for a bit, then they kind of fight, and then they get on for a bit, and then they sort of break up for a little bit, but it's not really clearly defined, or at least on one of their sides, it's not clearly defined. 
and then they get back together and they fight some more. Whereas I feel like the t- a TV show having the the time to just kind of space out those major breaks in the relationship with kind of just funny stuff like they all you know they all go to um the, that that resort place oh when uh it's randy's cousin's got like is it when palm randy, randy yeah randy's cousin's yeah. got like a condo in palm spring springs but it's actually just yeah. palm springs adjacent yes and it's not so much a condo as it is a house that's falling apart and everyone hates them <laughs> Just for showing up, which uh, I I really liked that episode just because I always enjoy when TV shows take like an established dynamic of people and say, okay, we're going to kind of strand you in the middle of nowhere and see what happens. But also because it kind of offers a a, a brief view of kind of like the California that tends not to be in movies so much. Mm -hmm. Like we had Ladybug last year, which offered a view of, of Sacramento, which is kind of a similar part of the state. But, you know, there are vast stretches of california which are you know kind of quite desolate you know the the, probably the most famous example of that in pop culture would be something like five easy pieces Mm -hmm. which all takes place in i think modesto uh i want to say it's that sort of area and it's all yeah kind of like really feels like quite dust bowly you know just kind of empty sparsely populated parts of the state and it's quite uh, quite novel seeing that showcased in a in a tv show that otherwise is so focused on kind of being la centric Mm. and uh la is definitely it sounds like well it is genuinely like a joke from brooklyn 99 about sex Mm -hmm. in the city but la is the like you know the third character in this show Mm. and i kind of almost wish that i'd have seen this before i spent any time there even though i did i did stay in silver lake when i stayed in la and a lot of those kind of hipster spots i do recognize um and they capture the feel of it very very well but it kind of it manages to capture that kind of idea that la is this kind of like sprawling mass in which it's very easy to get lost um Mm. kind of like both physically because the characters do get lost several times in LA, but also kind yeah. of emotionally and get caught up in the idea of chasing a dream that is uh, somewhat unattainable. Yeah, and the people always talk, certainly, you know, you ever hear speak to anyone who moved to LA and ever spent any amount of time there, they'll always talk about, like, the first couple of years there being very lonely. Because, like you say, it is such a sprawling place and it's very hard to connect with people. And I think that is true of a lot of of major cities but when you have one where everyone's in their cars and the only way they connect connect is if they crash uh in the words of paul haggis's best picture winning movie there is that sense that it's a place that is really doesn't necessarily have that sense of a unifying identity it just has a lot of it's essentially a lot of small neighborhoods that are glommed together and I think that it does a really good job of getting that feeling across and, and why the relationships in it uh, feel so intense in that regard. Because in some cases, certainly in the case of, of Bertie, who's coming over from Australia and in, uh, the start of the show has really only been there for a, a couple of months. Her and Randy getting together makes sense in the sense that he, at least initially, is not overtly terrible mm-hmm. and just kind of becomes more more overtly terrible as it goes along. But there's also that sense that he is something of a life raft for her as someone who has come to LA from an entirely different country uh, and has pretty much no friends when the show starts. Mm, Yeah. And her actually becoming Mickey's roommate seems to be 
in some sense what Mickey needs to survive um, mm. at that time, but also turns to be kind of a little bit suspicious when she reveals that she like killed animals. Um, yes. So, you know, you get the kind of idea that Mickey's someone who needs help, but will literally take any help that's on offer at that moment because she doesn't really have any better plan. She's someone who doesn't have a plan for anything. Yeah. And she also is of the age. Cause she's like 32. I think she mentions at the start of the show. She's at the sort of age where she is, more or less the only one of her friends who is still single or she's the only one of her friends who uh isn't in kind of like a really serious relationship and seems to have like things more or less panning out as you know you would expect with like owning a home and 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 having a kind of like a growing family there is that sense that a lot of her friends who do sit clearly still care for her find it increasingly hard to relate to the problems that she's dealing with and part of that is just that they have their own things to deal with and part of it is just that they're not quite in the same headspace as she is even though at a time you know several years like 10 years earlier they were all very very close and all you know going out and getting fucked up together Mm. yeah there's they don't kind of it's obvious but they don't make it kind of painfully obvious like you're being slapped in the face with it that her friends are moving on and like her friends like played by the aforementioned E from uh, Eels and um, the couple of which the husband is Horatio Sands, but I can't remember the actual name who plays uh, the wife. Um, But like those are people who are very much taking different routes with kids, careers, houses and all that kind of thing. Um, but there's never like a, oh my God, you guys have sold out. I'm so much better Mm. off being a free spirit type thing being rubbed with it. Like, it looks like neither option is particularly desirable of, you know, of a life choice. You know, it it kind of takes a very non-judgmental stance on both kind of, kind of both parties. Um, which I quite like because sometimes that kind of framing can be quite heavy handed. Yeah, especially because, like, I think in a lot of Apatow's film work, there is that sense of, even though I don't know it necessarily think he would see it this way, because based just on his kind of, like, politics and his, just his general demeanor and how he talks about these issues, but there seems to be a certain air of conservatism to them in that the characters who are, you know, kind of, like, living non-traditionally are basically in the end they have to just kind of conform and get a you know kind of get with the program and in some cases that makes total sense with like knocked up like it's very easy to it's it's very hard for me to watch that and think that Seth Rogen is right that what he needs to do is just keep getting stoned and hanging out with his buddies it's like no you need to get a real job and read the baby books and understand how all this shit works because you're going to have a kid and it's going to drastically alter your life but there is always a sense that it feed that there is also that sense that he wants to have it both ways of being like, Hey, look at all these people having fun. But at the end of the day, you know, what you really need to do is, you know, get a 401k or whatever, you know, that, that seems to be the, the, and the problem is with a lot of his movies is they never, they never really kind of strike that balance particularly well, most notably in like train wreck as well, which is a movie I, I enjoy quite a bit, but train wreck has like that thing as well, where, on the one hand, it's like, you know, hey, you don't get to judge Amy Schumer for going out and sleeping around and not you know, conforming to what society expects of, of women in their 30s or whatever. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, but she really needs a good man. 
you know that's kind of like the way it seems to go in his movies and this is much more empathetic to both sides like where where it seems to be saying that kids and marriage and stuff is it can be good but it comes with its own problems and not wanting to be a part of that and not wanting to kind of feel like you're selling out or being boring by doing all this stuff is also a valid point of view and it doesn't really seem to side on all of them because mickey's life is kind of a mess and she has a lot of kind of problems to deal with but also her friends uh come off as kind of a real real kind of like callous in their inability to understand why you know her addictions are you know can be so debilitating Mm, yeah and it does a great job of portraying addiction um in a way Mm. that is kind of very genuine very honest and part of the success of that is Gillian Jacobs performance which is Mm. I mean for you know obviously I came to know her as Britta from Community and she was always one of my least favorite character in that but then I realized having watched community a couple of times she didn't really have a lot to work with she's kind of like almost a one joke character in a lot of ways Mm. but she really kind of this is an amazing body of of performance over 30 hours yeah absolutely i think that she brings so much kind of nuance to it she is super funny and she can do all of like the kind of like caustic stuff because a lot of the humor of her character is her tearing people apart or you know kind of making fun of people either with gus or you know making fun of gus you know there's uh, and there is there's something very she's very charming at it as well it's not like she's just like a constant mean joke machine Mm -hmm. she you know she has an inherent charm to her that really comes across but there is also a real sense of of humanity to it when she struggles particularly i think in the second season is when she really commits to you know staying clean when she, or staying sober rather, when she kind of really commits to it, there is a, a real kind of sense that this is tough and it's a struggle and there is, you know, kind of a, a vulnerability underneath it all that she puts across but doesn't, like, really sell it. It's like, you know, of being like, oh, I'm just kind of like this this wounded animal that needs to be healed. It is more just that sense of, like, she is someone who is really struggling with a series of kind of interlocking dependencies and it's she is kind of struggling it out and trying to make the best of it yeah and like in one of the 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 kind of series kind of almost pivotal um episodes um which i I never thought i'd say that a season that i think a lot of had a pivotal episode involved that revolved entirely around andy dick playing himself (laughs) yeah um and i wouldn't have thought that i'd have said about a season of television that two of the most surprising performances were from Andy Dick and David Spade. Mm, yeah, who uh, shows up as the father of Arya, the, the girl that Gus is tutoring, who is really, really good in it. He's, he's quite funny in a way that he really hasn't been in it in a long time, but also is giving kind of like a nuanced performance as a guy who does kind of care, does does care about his daughter's future, but also has a very innate cynical understanding of her future is also his future because uh, he doesn't really have anything else going on besides her career. Uh, And he is very funny watching him kind of come in and be something of a bulldozer 
uh, for Gus's kind of plans and ambitions in a, in a number of ways. Uh, and the show also does really well by Daniel Stern, who shows up as Britta's, uh, Britta, as uh, <laughs> Mickey's father uh, in the second season. It, the show really has kind of like a, um, has a, a real kind of knack for bringing out really good work, good kind of solid character work from kind of comedy stars of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Who who else in the supporting uh, cast uh, jumps out at you? I think uh, the one thing I noticed is that Rich Summer is Mm -hmm. uh, slowly banging all of the cast of Community (laughs) across various Netflix originals because he sleeps with Alison Brie in Glow. He sleeps with uh, Gillian Jacobs in Love. He is in Mm -hmm. that Netflix movie Briefly with Joel McHale. Uh, about the uh, um, National Lampoon, so I didn't see what went on. Oh, yeah. yeah, so you know he's getting himself around. Yeah, he's weirdly becoming the John Ratzenberger of <laughs> Netflix comedies because he just kind of like shows up. He's also in like all the Wet Hot American Summer stuff mm-hmm. as one of the the preppy guys hanging around with Josh Charles. It's kind of it's kind of weird how that seems to have been his his niche. Also, similarly, like I mentioned earlier, John Slattery, who directs several episodes of Love, or at least one episode of Love, and shows up in like Arrested Development, which I'd forgotten about until I rewatched it. And I think, mm. yeah, he's also in Wet Hot American Summer as the like theatre teacher who does that role when he walks into the, the uh, when he walks into the theatre for the first time that completely doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All of the Mad Men cast eventually, I think, will end up being on on Netflix and you know they'll all come together for the Netflix version of the Avengers mm. which I guess I, was the Defenders which no one watched yeah which would have been better if I had Brett Gelman in it because he's mm. great in this as just an absolute horrible horrible version of Frasier <laughs> yeah although it's probably still the nicest character he's ever played yeah, yeah. I was waiting for his character in Stranger Things season two to do something awful, but he kind of <laughs> always kind of holds off just. But yeah, you're right. He he has made a uh, a career making uh, p- portraying kind of just awful antagonists, um, mm. and um, his kind of radio doctor in inverted yeah. commas is mm. you know. Uh, no exception. I thought Iris Apatow was very good. I, when she, I saw that she was a character in it, I was like, well, okay, the director's cast his daughter. This is going to be trying to launch a, a kind of launch a star in his own kind of uh, nepotistic way. But she's actually pretty decent in it. Um, she's yeah. good and kind of plays a very spoiled kind of bratish person who has no friends. Um, mm. And, you know, you realise halfway through that, you know, she needs Gus in a way that he never really understood yeah and i think she she's pretty good from the beginning but she really grows as the show goes along because obviously she's getting more experience acting and i think they give her more to do particularly in the third season when wichita having come back from the brink of cancellation is kind of rebooted and at that point she's meant to be sort of 15 16 so there's a bit more of of plot lines for her involving kind of like romance and her kind of having a crush on one of the new cast members and things like that which i think uh is something that could have played kind of very falsely especially because all the witch star stuff always feels like such a background concern and always feels like really really broad hollywood satire but i think she brings a real heft to it by that point because she's so used to kind of playing the character and she's grown so much as an actress uh so yeah i, I had very much the same 
concerns when the show started. But uh, yeah, she she really surprised me. I think in terms of the supporting cast as well, I just like all of the various people who show up playing Gus's friends who play music at his house where they write theme songs for movies that don't have them, mm-hmm. which is uh, some of the, the funniest moments of the show where they're sitting there just kind of coming up with like what would be the theme tune for the perfect storm or while you were sleeping which is a actually a really sweet ballad that i couldn't get out of my head for fucking days after watching it mm. um but yeah you got people like charlene yee who who shows up in it a bunch of people who used to be in the birthday boys with mike mitchell uh yeah i think there's a lot of really fun people who just kind of like show up and it does feel like the natural outcome of kind of like the growth of the LA podcasting scene that all of these people who have managed to build something of a reputation through being on things like Comedy Bang Bang and who have fostered that community you know whenever they get a chance to make a TV show obviously they just kind of bring all of them in and say okay we've got a part for you in this episode and a part for you in this episode and there's a there's a kind of a generosity of spirit to that approach that I I really really like Mm, yeah it is a very kind of unwieldy ensemble and like many mm. of Gus's friends I don't know their names at all um, yeah. but it didn't matter they kind of just seemed to represent this group that kind of hung out and did kind of cool stuff the the Why You Were Sleeping theme tune that they made is uh, and they play it on the end of that episode they, they've actually mm. got a recorded version that plays over the credits yeah. um, so they exist somewhere and you know it is that, that, that uh, exercise of, of recording theme songs for films that don't have them is quite something. I think that should be done by professional musicians just just for fun because the stuff that they come up with is, is like... I mean, they don't tonally fit anything that's happening in the <laughs> films, but um, I'm into it. I'm totally into it. Yeah, I think the theme tune for The Side House Rules is like a jock jam because mm. it's all about saying how people say that The Side House sucks. But <laughs> in fact, The Side House Rules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is not what that film's about. <laughs> it isn't what that film's about, but when I first heard that title, when it first you know, came out and I was, what, 13 or 14, that's actually what I thought the title referred to. Because <laughs> it didn't quite compute in my head that rules could refer to a set of rules. I just thought, oh, it's about this house that kicks ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they drink cider in there all day yeah. and all night. That's the only rule is they drink cider. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that that song definitely fits my interpret my teenage interpretation of what the side house rules is about. Mm, yeah, I also there's a there's a bit in um, a later episode in season three where him and his friends Gus and his friends are out at a bar, and mm-hmm. Gus brings up the idea that if Chandler and Joey are obsessed with Die Hard in Friends. Mm-hmm. They never mention it when Bruce Willis turns up playing the dad of Ross's girlfriend later on, even yeah. if they exist in a universe where you know he's not Bruce Willis. Ross is dating someone whose dad is exactly the same <laughs> like physical type and appearance as Bruce Willis, and no one says anything. I like the kind of little diversionary diversions like that that don't feel like kind of Kevin Smith riffs, you know. Mm. And I think the show does a really good job of, at the very least, allowing things like that to uh, gradually kind of 
edge into the plot because they're they're having that discussion and then the girls at the table behind them start making fun of them for having this kind of like ridiculously nerdy conversation and then they come over and then the episode is kind of about how Gus and Mickey who are kind of on the outs at that point one of the many times that their relationship has kind of not kind of fallen apart but that they are certainly you know maybe not that happy with each other you know he ends up talking to one of the girls and spends the whole and at one point just basically says you know hey i know that you're you're kind of like flowing with me i have a girlfriend and then she's like i was just being nice to you <laughs> which is like i feel one of the the cases of the show doing a really good uh, example of basically pointing out the ways in which gus is you know just really in it despite you know his him maybe presenting himself as this guy who's together is actually really emotionally immature and doesn't really understand how to be in a relationship despite the fact that the start of the series he's come out of a semi-serious relationship with mm -hmm. uh his previous girlfriend natalie played by uh milano Weintraub, who i uh, like from being on like douglas movies she's on douglas movies a lot and uh, also his um girlfriend of Martin star's character in silicon valley Ah, uh, okay, yeah, that's where I recognise her from, yeah. Yeah, she's always very funny when she shows up on that show. The show in general just has a much better balance of allowing the characters to kind of go off on these fun little tangents that do feel like things that people, conversations that people would really have in, certainly in kind of like a, a bar setting amongst friends, but also not just getting completely lost in that in the way that a lot of the the similar stuff in you know in, in like a kevin smith movie or in a lot of judd apatow's apatow's film work where a riff like that would be allowed to continue for one and a half minutes because oh it was so funny on the day and it doesn't matter that it you know completely ruins the pacing of the movie and doesn't really amount to anything there it's like okay we only really have like 30 minutes to play with so we'll let this last just the right amount of time and then we'll move on to the next thing hmm yeah, yeah. It doesn't, like, linger in those excesses, which are always the downfall of such things. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Anything else about Kind of Love that really stood out to you as, as something that, you know, felt really special? I think it, it does avoid a lot of the... Because it takes the realistic approach to uh, relationships, when you do get the moments of highs or lows, they feel a lot more genuinely earned than... Mm. Some of the more contrived things you would see in a romantic comedy, in yeah. air quotes, um, there is essentially a meet cute if you think about mm. how they get together, um, but it never feels that way. Um, there seems to be an air of kind of realism that never slips into kind of cynicism about it mm. that so it all feels kind of nice and when when good things happen you feel it and when bad things happen you feel it because you're with them because the characters aren't the kind of snarky assholes that they appear to be when you first meet them which yeah. i think that that's what's refreshing about the show there there really isn't much to say new about love in movies anymore um we've kind of it kind of it's most movies are about it in some way or another um and it's it, it's just the the way you present it can really change that and make you feel like you're watching something fresh and new and mm. in love I genuinely thought that, even though, um, and I think that a lot of that's to do with the the elements that you might think, oh, okay, well, why am I why am I getting kind of drawn into a you know a subplot about 
spoil brats on the set of a TV show about witches and and like mm-hmm. you know and and you know in that in a film that would be on the cutting room floor, but because of this, it's like all these extra bits help define those characters and who they are and how they relate. To, like these aren't a, that none of that stuff is about Gus and Mickey's relationship, but in the end, it kind of is. It feeds into who they are and what they do and and how they react and 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 that's what I like about. The show it kind of it kind of sprawls in a kind of delightful way, and even the diversions I enjoy. Yeah, I, I think that the the workplace element of it is really key because you do see how they change as people because of being in a relationship with each other, and how that then impacts other parts of their life. Because Mickey is kind of supportive of Gus, he's more willing to kind of take a risk on writing these scripts or showing them to people at work, which doesn't work out 100% of the time, but, you know, does at the very least give him an avenue to kind of pursue, you know, his creative endeavours, and it then does eventually end up kind of paying dividends for him at the very end of the show. But you do, there is a definite sense that if she wasn't in his life, he wouldn't have really taken the leap on that if he was still in his relationship with Natalie or if, you know, he and Natalie had still broken up, but he had gotten together with someone else. And and also, you know, him providing something of a, a a point of stability in their relationship, while not necessarily being 100% a stable person himself, does allow her to kind of get a handle on her love and sex addiction and her alcoholism. And then through that, you know, she talks about how she suddenly kind of cares about things at work in ways that she hadn't before, and that allows her to progress through her career and I think that aspect of it is really well handled it does really suggest that love as a as a as an as an idea as a thing in people's lives is not merely just about kind of sex or romance it's about how that permeates outward and how it can have effects on other elements of people's lives which I think is an idea that isn't necessarily explored that often in you know film and tv but is handled very very well in in love, and uh, I also think the show does a really good job in a way that a lot of shows don't of using texting and things like that to tell the story and to grow the relationship and to kind of reflect how people communicate now. Because you know, obviously, texting has been part of everyday life now for like nearly fifteen years or so. Certainly, for people of, of my generation, people who were like teenagers at the turn of the millennia that's a really important thing like people constantly text each other and it's a big part of how people interact you know in relationships and i think the show does a really good job of making that feel integral and not feeling like oh this is the thing people do now so we'll kind of do it every so often it really is something that happens in pretty much every episode and it always feels like a vital part of the show's storytelling mm. it's the uh, the modern update of the civil war letter Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If, Plus emojis. If Netflix are into releasing remixes of their shows now, let's get a crossover between this and sort of a Ken Burns doc <laughs> where every time that they have a text message, it's, you know, Peter Coyote just <laughs> reading out smiley face, smiley <laughs> face. Or just completely mix them up for like, you yeah. know what I mean? Dearest Martha, the forces are closing in from the south. Lol. You know what I mean? <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. I mean, that's what all documentaries will be like in 100 years' time when they have to start utilising, like, Twitter DMs to really understand what was happening in the key 
cultural and political moments of our time. Mm-hmm. What a stupid era we live in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is known as the vapid years. Mm, yeah. Uh, fun, though. Terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying, but fun, like a roller coaster. Mm. So we end this episode, as we end all our episodes, with Shot vs. Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed and that we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend to the listeners this week? Well, um, because you mentioned him earlier in this episode, and we're talking about uh, love and the idea of love on film and television and stuff, um, I'm going to recommend a Joe Swanberg movie. Um, he's, mm. he's made a quite a few, um, but this is uh, one of his better ones. It's called Nights and Weekends. Um, it came out in 2008, and it stars Joe Swanberg himself and uh, Greta Gerwig. You might have heard of her uh, as a couple, and it's it's the film is split into two halves. The first half is about a couple who are kind of getting together, and they relate, their relationship is burgeoning, and it's all kind of exciting and thrilling. In the second half, which uh, they filmed like much later, I don't know how long a period. I don't know if it was years or, or months or what, but um, the second half is is the kind of the downfall, the kind of the, the, the kind of the downward spiral of, of two people whose uh, relationship has been put under pressure because it's a long distance relationship and mm-hmm. how it kind of slowly unravels. Very intimate film, very small cast, very mumblecore. If you want to look at the mumblecore movement, um, I kind of hate that phrase, but yeah. um, something like the puffy chair and this would be your kind of key texts. Mm. Um and yeah, it, like in the way that love is a very kind of like brutally honest, realist, like realistic depiction of relationships. This is uh, one that is done so in about 90 minutes um, and it's very good. And obviously we love Greta Gerwig, um, who doesn't? Um, and she's very winsome in it, very complicated. And uh, it's an early performance for her, I think, way before she'd done anything. I've seen yeah, it was like two, three, four years before she did uh, Francis Ha. So mm. uh, it was still kind of very early for her. And yeah, if you want to know what Joe Swanberg does with his weekends, uh, <laughs> he makes films like Nights and Weekends. Yeah, it's a good movie and I recommend it heartily. It's pretty much widely available. I think it's probably on Netflix, buried deep under there. A lot of those Mumblecore films are. So if you right. can find it, check it out. Cool. I'm going to recommend a music video. Uh, Donald Glover, who we mentioned earlier in passing, hosted Saturday Night Live this week. And in addition to just making everyone look bad by being (laughs) really funny in that and also being his own musical guest and just generally showing off how consistently brilliant and good at everything he is, which was basically the subject of his own monologue, which was uh, was very funny. Uh, During the show, he released the video for his new song, This Is America, which he also performed on the show. And... Yeah, I think most people have seen it now. It's been blowing up over the last 24 hours or so since it went out into the world. But I, I honestly can't recommend it enough. I think it is a, a truly amazing work of, of of kind of like visual media. It is directed by Hiro Murray, who is a kind of a long-term, long-time collaborator of Don Glover. He's directed a lot of episodes of Atlanta. It's a really densely packed video basically it is you know under the song which is this interesting mix of kind of these uplifting gospel kind of intros and breaks and real dark menacing kind of trap music donald glover walks through this warehouse where he's kind of like dancing and and really kind of being the center of the frame but everything around him is chaos you know 
police are beating people up. He at one point is given an AK-47 and he mows down a a chorus, a church kind of choir. And it's this really fascinating and exhilarating and disturbing kind of promo for a single, which essentially is about the ways in which America deludes itself about how violent and chaotic a place it is. Um, essentially arguing that people are too obsessed with pop culture, which is represented by him being kind of like the star and dancing and doing all of these dances that have gone viral on the internet over the last few years and ignoring the fact that people are being gunned down in the street all the, every day and there's riots and everything. And it is, a, it's, 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 it's just thrilling to watch. It's, um, you know, a clarion call. It's a call to arms in a way which doesn't feel kind of like tired or browbeating. It like it's not necessarily that he's saying anything bracingly new, but he's saying it in a very direct and new and uh, kind of unavoidable way. And it's just you know, on top of everything else he's been doing over the last couple of years with his music and with with Atlanta, it's really compelling seeing him kind of like grow as this artist and reach this point where he feels capable of melding pretty much everything together into this really biting four minutes of social commentary and the last two or three shots in particular are some of the most striking things i've seen in any kind of like movie tv show whatever of the last year and i'm i'm i i really just can't recommend it enough it's absolutely incredible mm, i've watched it several times today and yeah. the overriding thought in my head was i can't remember who said it but there's like a, a, a an artist from kind of like the, the the kind of anarchist art movement days where he said that like you know art, an art a work of art should be like a hand grenade you throw into a room mm. and this music video feels exactly like that but what makes it even more amazing is like the dude who's doing it is playing simba in the lion king yeah, I mean, this guy is like so unbelievably versatile that he can do something like that and also be like what looks like he's going to be the most appealing part of the next Star Wars movie, playing a kind of mm. like knockabout, lighthearted romp that he's so goddamn talented and versatile. He is, like you say, making everyone else look bad. Mm -hmm. um, and then he drops something like this just kind of casually and you're like, fuck. And it does seem like like uh, one of the interpretations of it that I think is really interesting is, you know, the fact that he is at the centre of it and he is obviously a black artist. You know, there is that part of it is kind of commenting on the ways in which the success of black culture in terms of music and film and art, you know, is, is kind of popular and being out there is in some way, you know, held up by people who want to deny that there are, you know, deep systemic racial problems in the US as a sign of progress, when in fact it could be used as uh, something that's just kind of to distract from that. Uh, and I think that him doing that in the middle, essentially, of the promotional campaign for a Star Wars movie on SNL, where the whole thing is, you know, just kind of meant to be light and fun, feels like, again, like the idea is not just throwing a hand grenade into the room it's throwing a hand grenade into the most packed room imaginable and it's, it's such a great indicator of the sheer amount of confidence i think he has in himself as an artist that he's able to just kind of say okay i have a bigger platform than i've ever had and who knows if i'll have this kind of platform again i'm going to use it to do something incredible 
And uh, yeah, I think it's fair to say he accomplished that. Mm, absolutely. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, write us a review and recommend it to your friend. It's the easiest way and really the only way for us to grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.